Section 15 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 15. Andrew Carnegie. Part 1. Quote, I congratulate poor young men upon being born to that ancient and honorable degree which renders it necessary that they should devote themselves to hard work. End quote. Andrew Carnegie. The fact that Andrew Carnegie is a Scotsman has, so far as I know, never been refuted or denied. Scotland is a wonderful country in which to slip the human product. Then, when this product is transplanted to a more sunshiny soil, we sometimes get a world beater scotland is a good country to be born in and it is a good country to get out of and at times it may be a good country to go back to i once attended a dinner given to james barry in london one of the speakers sprung the usual joke about how when the scotch leave scotland they never go back when barry arose to reply he said quote, perhaps it is true that the scotch when they leave their native land seldom return if so there is surely precedent in truth Englishmen have been known to go to Scotland and never return. Once there was quite a company of Englishmen went to Scotland and they never returned. The place where they went was Brannockburn. In literature, Scotland has exceeded her quota. From Adam Smith with his deathless wealth of nations, and Thomas the techie titan with his French Revolution, to Bobby Burns and Robert Lewis, the well-beloved, we have a people who have been saying things and doing things since John Knox made pastoral calls on Mary Queen of Scots and saw the devil's tail behind her chair. Dr. Johnson pretended to hate the Scotch, but he lives for us only because he was so well Boswellized by a Scotsman, and now nobody knows just how much of Boswell is Dr. Johnson and how much is Boswell. What Connecticut has done for New England, Scotland did for Great Britain. The Scotch gave us the iron ship, the lamp chimney, the telephone. Also, they supplied us Presbyterianism, and, this being true, they also supplied the antidote in David Hume. We have been told that it is necessary to agree with a Scotsman or else kill him. But this is a left-handed libel, likened to the statement that the reason the Scotch cling to breeks is because the breeks have no pockets, and when drinks are mentioned, Sandy fumbles for siller, but is never able to find the price and so let someone else foot the bill. Another bit of classic persiflage is to the effect that there are no Jews in Scotland, because they could no more exist there than they could in New Hampshire, and this for a like reason. They find the competition too severe. The canny Scot, with his beautiful nearness, lives in legend and story in a thousand forms. The pain a Scotsman suffers on having to part with a shilling is pictured by Ian McLaren and Sir Walter. Then came Christopher North and Dr. John Brown, with deathless Scotch stories of sacrifice and unselfishness that shame the world and secure the tribute of our tears. To speak of the Scotch as having certain exclusive characteristics is to be a mental mollycoddle. As a people, they have all the characteristics that make strong men and women, and they have them plus. The Scots supply us the eternal paradox. Against the tales of money-meanness and miserly instincts, we have Andrew Carnegie, who has given away more money in noble causes than any other man who has ever lived since history began. The Scotch stand in popular estimate for religious bigotry, yet the offense of Andrew Carnegie to a vast number of people is his liberal attitude of mind in all matters pertaining to religion. Then the Scots are supposed to be pugnacious, quarrelsome, and fighting people. 
but here is a man who has made his name known as a symbol of disarmament and international peace those three great and good scotsmen leaders in the world of business james oliver philip d armour and andrew carnegie were each the very antithesis of dogmatists and sectarians they respected all religions but had implicit faith in none all were learners all were men of peace all had a firm hold on the plain old simple virtues which cannot be waived when you make up your formula for a man they were industrious systematic economical persistent and physically sound if there is any secret in the success of the scotch it lies in the fact that they are such good animals the basis of life is physical the climate of scotland makes for a sturdy manhood that pays cash and seldom apologizes for being on earth unlike james oliver and philip armour andrew carnegie is small in stature he belongs to the type of big little men of which napoleon aaron burr alexander hamilton and general grant are examples deep-chested strong-jawed well-poised big little men who wear the crowns of their heads high and their chins in these are good men to agree with they carry no excess baggage they travel light they can change their minds and plans easily such men take charge of things by a sort of divine right now be it known that andrew carnegie was born in decent poverty at dumfermline fifeshire scotland in the year eighteen hundred thirty seven his father was a weaver by trade this was in the day of the handloom there were four damask looms in the carnegie house worked by the family and apprentices there was no ring-up clock and no walking delegates were in evidence when business was good these looms sang their merry tunes far into the night when business was dull perhaps one loom echoed its tired solo then there came a time when there was no work hopeless melancholy settled on the little household and drawn anxious faces looked into other faces from which hope had fled steam was coming in and the factories were starving out the roycrofters it is hard to change in order to change your mind you must change your environment the merchants used to buy their materials and take them to the weaver and tell him how they wanted the cloth made the weaver never thought that he could get up a new pattern buy materials and devise a scheme whereby one man could tend four looms or fourteen and advertise his product so the consumer would demand it and thus force the merchant to buy ay and if that didn't work the whole blooming bunch of middlemen who batten and fatten between the factory and the family could be eliminated and the arrogant retailer wholesaler factor and agent be placed on the retired list through the mail-order plan or i again the consumer's wants could be anticipated as they are by the standard oil company and the gentlemanly salesman psychic in his instincts would be at the door in answer to your sincere desire uttered or unexpressed when the times changed carnegie the elder was undone a few years later his son andy could have shown him fifty-seven ways by which the consumer could be reached andy would have known only one defeat and that would have come when all the consumers were dead and ceased to consume when carnegie the elder quit the loom the consumers were using more cloth than ever but the goods were being made in a new way hunger is the first incentive to migration says adam smith hunger and danger in right proportion are good things it is a great idea for a woman who would give to the world superior sons to marry a man without too much ambition if too much is done for a woman she will never do much for herself this proves that she is a human being whether she can vote or not hunger hardship deprivation breed big virtues before deeds are born they are merely thoughts or aspirations the desire to better her condition 
and the struggle with unkind fate on behalf of her children often is the heritage of mother to son the mother endows the child with a tendency a great moral tendency a reaching out towards a success which she has never seen as planet responds to the attraction of planet and the things she has dreamed her child grown to manhood makes come true temperance fanatics are often the offspring of drunken parents shiftless fathers breed financiers we are taught by antithesis andrew carnegie is the son of his mother when the looms stopped and the piteous voice of the father said andy we have no work the mother lifted up her voice and sang one of the songs of zion there were always morning prayers when there was no work the father would have forgotten the prayers because there was nothing to be thankful for and prayer wouldn't stop the steam factory what's the use was the motto of carnegie the elder the mother led the prayers just the same there was a reading from the bible then each one present responded with a verse of scripture legend says that little andy once at seven years of age when it came his turn to give the verse from the bible handed in thus quote, let every tub stand on its own bottom end quote. but as the quotation was not exactly acceptable he tried again with this quote, take care of the pence and the pounds will take care of themselves end quote. thus do we see that the orphic habit was already beginning to germinate before andrew carnegie was ten years old he had evolved a beautiful hatred of kings princes and all hereditary titles there was only one nobility for him and that was the nobility of honest effort to live off another's labor was to him a sin to eat and not earn was a crime these sterling truths were the inheritance of mother to son and these convictions andrew carnegie still holds and has firmly held since childhood's days the other day in reading a book on military tactics i came across this quote, an army has but two duties to perform one is to fight the enemy and the other is to evade the enemy end quote. which duty is the more important the writer did not say so let that pass there are two ways of dealing with misery one is to stay and fight the demon to a finish and the other way is to beat a hasty and honorable retreat there is no work then we will go to where the work is said the mother of a millionaire to be the furniture went to pay the grocer the looms were sold for a song the debts were paid and there was enough with the contribution of a ten-pound note by a fond uncle to buy passage to new york for the father mother thomas and andrew it was the year eighteen hundred forty eight thomas was sixteen and andrew was eleven tom was more handsome than andy but andy had the most to say the carnegies came to pittsburgh because the mother's two sisters from Dumfrieline were in Pittsburgh, and they had always gotten enough to eat. Then the sound of the name was good, and to this day Andrew Carnegie spells the final syllable B-U-R-H and pronounces it with a loving oatmeal burr. It was seven weeks in a sailing ship to New York, and one week to Pittsburgh by rail and raging canal. The land of promise proved to be all that had been promised. The Carnegies wanted jobs. They did not wait to accept situations. The father found a place in a cotton mill at a dollar and a half a day. Andy slipped in as bobbin boy and got one dollar and twenty cents a week. Five shillings a week, all his own, to be laid in his mother's lap each Saturday night, spelled paradise. He was helping to support the household. To know you are useful and realize that you are needed is a great stimulus to growth. Never again did the Carnegies hear that muffled groan, Oh, there is no work. The synonym of the word Carnegie is work. In a year, little Andy had graduated to the boiler room at two dollars a week.
It was twelve hours a day, a constant watching of water gauges, and a feeling of bearings for hot boxes. Andy used to awaken the family in the dead of the night by roaring out in hot mush accents, "'De boiler is busted!' and being shaken into wakefulness, the boy was much relieved to know that it was only a horrid dream, and the factory had not been blown into kingdom come because a wee laddie, red-headed and freckled, had nodded at his work. A rolling stone gathers no moss. This is true. However, it is also true that if it does not gather moss, it may acquire polish. Andrew Carnegie from boyhood had the habit of using his head as well as his hands. The two years in the boiler and engine room of a little factory did him a lot of good. But when fourteen, he firmly felt that he had to get out toward the sunlight, just as potatoes in dark cellar will in the spring send their sprouts reaching out towards the windows. In Pittsburgh at this time was a young man by the name of Douglas Reed, who was born in Edinburgh. On Sunday afternoon, Reed used to visit the Carnegies and talk about old times and new. Reed was an expert telegraph operator and afterwards wrote A History of the Telegraph. The more he saw of Andy, the more sure he was that the lad could learn the dot and dash and be an honor to the profession. The Carnegies had never had a telegraph message come to them and didn't want one, for folks only get messages when someone is dead. The way you learned the key, then, was to start in as a messenger, and when there were no messages, to hang around the office and pick up the mystery by induction. One great drawback to acting as messenger was that Andy did not know the streets. So he started in memorizing the names of all the business firms on Penn Avenue, up one side and down the other. Then he tackled Liberty Street, Smithfield Street, and Fifth Avenue. At home nights, he would shut his eyes and call the names until the household cried for mercy and shrieked, Hold! Enough! Before the operators got around in the morning, the boys used the keys, calling up other boys up and down the line. Needless to say, young Andy didn't spend all of his time on the streets. A substitute operator was needed one day, and Andy volunteered to fill the place. He filled it so well that the regular man, who was a bit irregular in his habits, was given a permanent vacation. At this time, all of the telegraph business was taken care of from the railroad offices, just as it is now in most villages. "'Who is the sandy, freckled one?' once asked Thomas A. Scott, superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. "'He's a Scot from Scotland, and his name is Carnegie,' was the answer." The play on words pleased Mr. Scott. He got into the habit of sending his messages by young Carnegie. And when, one day, he discovered that the Scotch lad had spoken of him as Tom Scott over the wire, the economy of the proceeding so much pleased him that he took Andy into his personal service at a raise of ten dollars a month. About this time came a sleet storm which carried down the wires. Volunteers who could climb were in demand. Young Carnegie's work indoors had reduced his physical powers, so climbing was beyond his ability. It was a pivotal point. Had he been able to climb, he might have evolved into a construction boss. As it was, he stuck to his desk and eventually owned the line. Thus did he prove Darwin's dictum that we are evolved by our weaknesses quite as much as through our strength. Daniel Webster once said that the great disadvantage in the practice of law is that the better you do your work, the more difficult are the cases that come to you. It is the same in railroading, or anything else, for that matter. Cheap men can take care of the cheap jobs. The reward for all good work is not rest, but more work, and harder work. Thomas A. Scott was a man of immense initiative. His was the restless, tireless, ambitious nature which makes up the composite that we call the American spirit. Andrew Carnegie, very early in life, developed the same characteristics. 
he never made hasty and ill-digested suggestions and then left them to others to carry out when young carnegie just turned into his twenties became private secretary to thomas a scott he was getting along as well i thank you as could be expected and nobody was more delighted than andy's mother not even andy himself and most of andy's joy in his promotions came from the pleasure which his mother found in his advancement when thomas a scott became president of the pennsylvania railroad andrew carnegie became superintendent of the pittsburgh division as a matter of course his salary was fifteen hundred dollars a year and this was the topmost turret of the tower it was as far as the ambition of either the mother or the young man could fly but the end was not yet thomas alexander scott was born at the forgotten hamlet of london franklin county pennsylvania london pennsylvania did not flourish as its founders had expected behold the folly of giving big names to little things caesar augustus jones used to be the town fool of east aurora until he was crowded to the wall by oliver cromwell robinson scott walked out of his native village a lad of ten who warmed his feet on october mornings where the cows had lain down later he came back and bought the county scott was a graduate of the university of hard knocks and he also took several postgraduate courses he received knocks all his life and gave them his parents had come from bonnie scotland and it was a joke among the whole line of the pennsylvania railroad that a man with red hair and a hot mush brogue could always get a job by shouting hoot mon at tom scott scott loved andy as well probably as he ever loved any one outside of his own family he loved him because he was scotch and he loved him because he rounded up every task he attempted he loved him because he smiled at difficulty and he loved him because he never talked back and said we never did it that way before in eighteen hundred sixty one president lincoln made simon cameron of pennsylvania secretary of war cameron was awfully scotch although i believe he was accidentally born in america cameron in time made thomas a scott assistant secretary of war and thomas a scott made andrew carnegie superintendent of the united states railways and telegraphs lincoln once said that it was the most difficult and exacting position in the whole government service the bent of the minds of both scott and carnegie was towards construction and peace they were builders financiers and diplomats they accepted government position as a duty and they did their work nobly and well but if these men had had their way there would have been no war they would have bought the slaves and paid for them and at a price which we would have paid out for pensions and interest on the war debt every year since they would have organized the south on an industrial basis and made it blossom like the rose instead of stripping it and starving it into dogged submission the lessons carnegie learned in wartime burned deep into his soul and helped to make him as he is today the foremost exponent of international disarmament in the world the game of finance carnegie learned from scott his foster father but when a salaried clerk carnegie was once called into scott's office andy i know where you can buy ten shares of adams express stock you'd better get it but i have no money said andy then go out and borrow some and andy did the mother mortgaging their little home to raise the money she never failed her andy he bought the stock at par it was worth a third more and paid dividends every few minutes to use the phrase of scott there is a suspicion that scott threw this little block of stock in the way of andy on purpose it was an object lesson in finance scott taught by indirection and did good by stealth when carnegie helped to organize the woodruff sleeping-car company which later was absorbed by the pullman company 
he was well out on the highway to fortune. Next came investments in oil lands, and Andrew Carnegie, 27 years of age, sold his oil interests for a decently few hundred thousand dollars. At this time, all the bridges on the Pennsylvania Railroad were made of wood. It was a wooded country, and the natural thing was to use the material at hand. But there were fires, accidents, washouts, and the prophetic vision of Andrew Carnegie foresaw a time when all railroad bridges would be made of iron. He organized the Keystone Bridge Works and took a contract to build a railroad bridge across the Ohio River. The work was a success, and practically the Keystone Bridge Works was without a competitor in America. But America was buying most of her iron in Birmingham. In 1868, Andrew Carnegie made a trip to Europe, taking his mother with him. He was then 31 years old and a man of recognized worth and power. The pride of the mother in her son was modest yet profound, and his regard for her judgment, even in bridge-building and railroad affairs, was sincere and earnest. Besides, she was a good listener, and by explaining his plans to his mother, Andy got them straight in his own mind. The trip to Europe was for a double purpose of seeing whether old Dumferline was really the delightful spot that memory pictured, and of getting the latest points in bridge-building and iron-making. Timber was scarce in England, and iron bridges and iron boats were coming as an actual necessity. Sir Henry Bessemer had invented his process of blowing a blast of cold air through the molten metal and thus converting iron into steel. The plan was simple, easy, and effective. The distinguishing feature of Andrew Carnegie's mind has always been his ability to put salt on the tail of an idea. He came back from England with the Bessemer process well outlined in his square red head. Others had put the invention through the experimental stage. He waited. That shows your good railroad man. Let your inventors invent. Most of their inventions are worthless. When the thing is right, we will take it on. The Carnegie fortune owes its secret to the Bessemer steel rail, the fish plate instead of the frog, and the steel rail in place of the good old snake head. The song of the rail died out to a low, continuous hum when Carnegie began making steel rails and showed the section hands how to bolt them together as one. Andrew Carnegie was a practical railroad man. He knew the buyers of supplies, and he knew how to convince them that they needed his product. Manufacturing is a matter of formula, but salesmanship is genius. Moreover, to get the money to equip great factories is genius and up to the 90s the Carnegie Mills were immense borrowers of capital. Our socialistic friends sometimes criticize Andrew Carnegie for making the vast amount of money that he has. We can't swear an alibi for him, and so my excuse for the man is this. He never knew it was loaded. It was largely accidental. In truth, he couldn't help making the money. Fate forced it on him. He has played this game of business for all there was in him, and he has played it according to the rules. Carnegie has never been a speculator. He is no gambler. He never bought a share of stock on margin in his life. The only thing he has ever bet on has been his ability to execute. He's been a creator and a builder. That his efforts have brought him this tremendous harvest of dol dolci is a surprise to him. He knew there would be a return, but the size of the return no living man was able to foresee or foretell. Andrew Carnegie has acted on the Times, and the Times have acted on him. He is a product, a child, if you please, of opportunity and divine energy. When James Anderson of Allegheny, Pennsylvania, stagecoach boss and ironmaster, about the year 1850, 
threw open his library to the public, he did a great thing. Anderson owned four or five hundred books. Anyone who wanted to read these books was welcome to do so. Especially were the boys made welcome. Anderson did not know what a portentous thing he was doing. Nobody does when he does a big thing. Actions bear fruit, sometimes. And into Anderson's library, one Sunday afternoon, walked a diffident, wee Scotch laddie who worked in a boiler room all the week. "'Where would you like to begin?' asked Mr. Anderson, kindly. And the boy answered, as another boy by the name of Thomas A. Edison answered on a like occasion, "'If you please, I'll begin here.' And he pointed to the end of a shelf, and he read through that library a shelf at a time. He got the library habit. Andrew Carnegie has given away 2,000 libraries. The first library built by Mr. Carnegie was in 1887 at Braddock, Pennsylvania. This was for the benefit, primarily, of the employees of the Carnegie Steelworks. In 1889, it was suggested that the city of Allegheny was in need of a library, quite as much as was Braddock. Mr. Carnegie proposed to build a library, art gallery, and music hall combined, at a cost of $300,000, provided the city would supply the site, and agree to raise $15,000 a year for maintenance. The offer was accepted and the building built, but at a cost of nearly $100,000 more than was expected. Yet Mr. Carnegie did not complain. To show that his heart was in the venture, he also presented a $10,000 organ for the hall. It was a first attempt, but the Northside Library is a model of beauty and convenience today. The way in which the people of Allegheny awakened, responded, and availed themselves of the benefits to be obtained from the Carnegie Library at Allegheny was most gratifying. The place was formally dedicated on February 13, 1890. President Harrison was present and made an address. The music for the occasion was supplied by young Damroche and his orchestra. Leopold Damroche, the noted leader, had died only a few years before, and his son Walter had taken up his work. The manly ways of young Damroche and his superb skill as a conductor made an impression on Mr. Carnegie then and there that bore speedy fruit. End of section 15. Recorded by Olivia.